Okay, we're going to come to our reading. So seamlessly, I'm going to start off in, in chapter 22 of Numbers, which uh, in the Bibles in your seats is page 159. So I'm going to read from chapter 22 and then seamlessly, seamlessly hand over to Nick, who's going to continue with chapter 23. We did joke that I've got the scene setting, I think. Nick's, Nick's got the punchline. There you go. So from chapter 22 of Numbers, from verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Though a Moabite said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethel, near the river Euphrates, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with that the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. (laughs) I'll leave him standing. Thanks, Mark. So you get the picture anyway. <clears throat> I'm going to cough because I've been singing too excitedly. Um, thanks, Mark. Balak, King Balak of Moab has summoned Balaam, who's known for divination. He's known for being able to kind of um, seek the Lord's will. Uh, and he's called him to come and put a curse um, on the people of Israel because there are so many of them. And he's scared. Um, and... First time round, Balak, uh, Balaam rather refuses to come. Balak sends more officials, um, more impressive than the first, uh, and, the, and they say, come. Uh, and Balaam says, even if you gave me all the silver and gold, I couldn't do anything great or small to go beyond the command of our God. So Balaam says, no, second time. Um, and then there's a strange little incident, which we won't go into, but God kind of says to him, yeah, okay, this, you can go, but don't, <clears throat> but don't, say or do anything other than what I um, say or ask you to do. There's, there's a humorous incident with a donkey. 
Um, if you've not read this story, you have to read this. It's one of the great, it is one of the great Bible stories. Um, <clears throat> and then um, Balak says to, to Balaam, uh, okay, we'll, 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 have, we'll make a big sacrifice. You inquire of the Lord, um, and then you curse them. That's how it works, uh, Balaam. Okay, uh, this is what I'm paying you to do. Big sacrifice, inquire of the Lord, um, curse them. Um, and what happens is make a sacrifice, Balaam inquires of the Lord, and he blesses them. And so Balak has another go. He says, you got this all wrong. Um, and he says with him, this is chapter 23, verse 13. Um, Come with me to another place where you can see them. You won't see all of them, but only the outskirts of the camp. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim, at the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars, and he offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, stay here and beside your offering while I meet with him over there. And the Lord met with Balaam and, and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering. <laughs> Poor old Balak, he's still standing next to the altar. Um, and Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? And then he spoke this message. This is Balaam. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me. Son of Zippor, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. Let's pray. Father God, speak speak to us this morning, we pray. You you have already been speaking to us, lifting our hearts to you, um, putting things on our hearts to bring to you in in prayer. We ask you now to speak to us through your word, about our speech, about your unchangeableness, and about how you are a God who does not lie. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Still slightly suspicious that I don't have all my sermon here with me this morning, but we'll find out in a minute. Um, so we're actually we're coming to Exodus uh, Exodus 20 again. Uh, we're in the ninth commandment, and it is you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. That's where we are. Yes, there are sermon notes around um, and about. Pick them up, and the words in red on there come up in the word search on the sermon notes if that helps you out. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. What would it be like if God lied? What would it be like if, if our God were a liar? So one day you read, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the next he says, no, it's not about just believing. It's not about trusting me. You have to earn it. And the next day, actually, he says, I don't really love you at all. So, tough. Or one day he says, there is in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in in Christ Jesus. And next day he says, no, you have to be a Jew. Um, And actually, I want you to be a little Jewish church over there and you to be a little Gentile church over there. Or the next week he says, no, it's not all about that. Actually, you have to be a woman. Or one day he says, don't be anxious about anything, through the Apostle Paul. 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says, comes to you and says, no, that was last week, sorry. It changed. Uh, this week, be anxious. I'm having a week off. I'm not, I'm, I'm not listening. You can pray as much as you like. But unless you bring me some animal sacrifices, this week I'm not listening. Or one day he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, uh, uh, would I have told you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, these are Jesus' words, I'll come back and take you to be with me. And the next he says, sorry, it's full. No more room. There was a limit. There was always a limit. And we've reached it and you're stuffed. I'm sure you hear us, even as we say that, it's kind of verging on blasphemy, isn't it? To suggest that one day God would say one thing and one day he would say another. If, if our God lies, how can he be known? How can you know somebody who's an inveterate liar? You can't know them at all. It's fundamental to our daily lives that, um, that God doesn't lie. How could he be trusted? So it's fundamental to our, our faith and our walk with the Lord that we know a God who doesn't lie. And that's what is so beautifully pictured for us in, in the book of Numbers. So this story of Balaam, briefly. Um, the people of Israel, they're, they're, they're trudging through the wilderness, waiting to enter the land that the Lord has promised them. Um, Balak, king of, Moses, uh, king of Moab, uh, is terrified. He sees hundreds of thousands of, of Israelites uh, armed, some of them armed, arriving at his border. And so he, he hires Balaam as a kind of spiritual hitman. Come and put a curse on these people because I, I can't, there's no way I'm going to be able to fight them off on my own. There's too many of them. But if you come, uh, if you plead God and you put a curse on them, then, then maybe I'll be okay. And Balaam is this interesting character. He's condemned in the New Testament. Um, he seems to have this way of hearing the Lord, um, but it's not entirely good and it's not entirely right. But Balak comes to him, says, curse them for me. Balaam says, let me sleep on it. And the Lord comes to him in the night and says, you can't curse them because they're blessed. You cannot curse them because I have chosen to bless them. Do you see where this is going? Balak says, sends more impressive officials. And Balaam says, you can give me all the silver and gold that you like, guys, but I can't do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. So you've, we've read the story. You see where it ends up. Balaam kind of allows his arm to be twisted. <clears throat> and so he goes. And the first time, he doesn't curse Israel. He blesses them. And he goes again at a different location. And instead of cursing them, so here's poor Balak. He's kind of like building altars and making sacrifices. Uh, and, and Balaam says to him, as we read, God is not a human. that He should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he speak and then not act? Do you hear that? Does he promise and not fulfill? I've received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. 
He also says, just along the way, there's no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. In other words, Balaam knows God has chosen these people. He has chosen them because he is going to bless them. He cannot change God's mind. He cannot twist God's set purposes. There is no divination. There is no magic. There is no force um, that he can invoke that can oppose God's purposes for these people. <clears throat> they have a third attempt, um, just to fill in the rest of the story, and it still doesn't work. And then, what happens at the end? You think this would be a great victory story? What happens at the end is that the Israelites get seduced by Moabite women, and what could not be achieved by outward attack um, is achieved by seduction. It's <laughs> Um, and Balaam is blamed for that, by the way, in the New Testament. What could not be achieved by curse, the Israelites bring upon themselves. Isn't that ironic? Do you see that? What could not be achieved by outward force, the Israelites bring upon by themselves by sin. Church cannot be defeated from the outside. There is no cursing um, the church. There is no changing God's mind. Uh, about the church. The only way the church is defeated is from the inside. But that's not our main point for today. The main point for this is, is God does not lie. The law does not lie. And actually, it is not in his nature to, to lie. He cannot lie. The Lord cannot lie. Hebrews 6 God made this promise, uh, the writer says, so that by two un unchangeable things in which it is, is, is impossible for God to lie, we who fled to take hold of the hopes that before us may be greatly encouraged. It is impossible for God to lie. Isn't that one of the most wonderful aspects of his character? If by lying we mean affirming in words, something you believe to be false. And that's the definition I'm going with. That comes from Wayne Grudem. Affirming in words something you believe to be false. Our God does not lie. He cannot lie. It's fundamental to us. We have a Bible that is true. And we have a Lord who is faithful to his promises. He has set his love upon you. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've trusted Christ trusted in the cross, then he has set his love upon you and he cannot be forced or persuaded to change his mind. That is set, it is fixed. For him to change his mind would be a lie. But here's the rub. We're called to imitate him. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. One aspect of that love is an imitating the Lord is that we don't lie. We're not false. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Sounds simple. <laughs> we'll see in a minute, it's not so simple. God does not lie and therefore Jesus does not lie. So we might, I guess we can get our heads around this concept that, that God does not lie on this abstract thing because God is kind of, is kind of out there. But what, what about, you know, when it comes down to the nitty gritty in human life and, and, and experience? <clears throat> Surely then it's impossible to live a human life with, with, without lying. Well, no, it is not impossible because Jesus did it. 
Jesus is God the Son, incarnate, so he cannot lie. Jesus was one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. So Jesus did not lie. I wonder how long it took Mary and Joseph to notice. Kind of probably not very long, because it's quite unusual, even in little kids. What are you doing? What's that thing you're holding? Um, doesn't take very long, does it? What would it be like Jesus as a teenager? Hard to imagine, isn't it? Jesus always kept his promises. Jesus always told the truth. So the apostles say at the end of his life, he did not sin. Never saw him lie. He didn't need, Jesus didn't need to lie. So why should we? Satan lies. Where does, if God doesn't lie, where does, where does lying and deception come from? They come from Satan. So Jesus says to some uh, Jewish listeners uh, at one point, he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So, so to lie, to, to deceive, to not do your word, to not follow through on what you have said, is to follow the wrong father. It's to follow the father of lies, not to follow our heavenly father. That's a bit shattering, isn't it? But it's not surprising then to find that lying, lying is an accompaniment to almost all sin. Lying seems, you know, on the face of it, lying, not telling the truth, it seems like a junior sin. You know, it's kind of, and maybe, you know, murder and adultery feel like grown-up sins. Well, it's, it, it's just not true. Lying is the kind of smokescreen behind which all other sins are committed. It's very difficult to sin without lying about it because we don't want other people to see and therefore there is, there is untruth involved. So if you're going to have no other gods before the Lord, most of us in here anyway, now there are people out there who are going to deliberately um, follow other gods and, and, and no bones about it, but if you, for you or I, that's going to mean have, uh, we've talked about this before, not going to go into detail, but other things that you really want to follow, <laughs> that really want to matter. And, and you're going to lie to yourself to do that, and you're going to lie to other people. You're going to say, no, building up a nest egg is, is, is not my God. I've got it under control. It's just, uh, have it thankfully from the Lord. It's going to involve lying. Having no images about the Lord, well, they're, they're mental images, the ones that are, are going to be the most tempting um, for us. And again, you're going to lie to yourself about it, and you're going to lie to other people about it. Misusing the name of the Lord, again, for us, most of the time, that is, means we're going to act in a way that is not um, coherent with, with God's character. You're going to lie about it. And remembering the Sabbath, you're going to say, 
there was some other reason that was bigger than worshipping the Lord and gathering with his people when you know it isn't. Do you start to get this? Whatever you do that is sin, it's going to involve lying. Honouring your father and your mother. The Jews said, well, there was this stuff we had dedicated to the Lord. It was Corban. Can't give it to our mother and father. There's always going to be some aspect of lying in terms of murder and hate. Murder itself, it's always going to involve lying, isn't it? You're going to cover it up. Um, But if you hate somebody, which is mental murder, you're going to lie about it. Committing adultery, yeah, obviously. You're going to lie about it. Not stealing, yeah, obviously. In other words, do you see that? That lying seems like a junior sin, but actually it's, it's the smokescreen. Behind which you think, if if I can if I can make this if I can make this lie convincing, I could do whatever I want. Believe me, there's a bit of that in all of us. If I can just make enough smoke, keep it in the corner, I can get on with what I want. Obviously, it's not true. So no wonder Jesus says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." Blessed are the pure in heart. Jen Wilkin, we've been reading this little book, haven't we? Um, at least some of us have. Um, Ten Words to Live By. Talks about four specific kinds of, of wrong speech. This next slide. And she calls them reviling, flattery, silence, and misat- misattribution. By reviling, I think she means slander. By flattery, you go and read it for yourselves. Um, silence is not speaking when you should do. A misattribution is claiming credit for something that you shouldn't claim credit for and shifting blame for things that you should take credit for. But slander, let's just deal with one of them. The others will come up in home groups a little bit. Um, they're there in the book. Slander is, is repeatedly listed with the most serious sins. And here we sort of come back to the, um, to the community-breaking aspect of sin. Because we see in, in, the, in the Ninth Commandment, it wasn't just about lying, was it? They were talking about uh, more specifically bearing false witness against a neighbor. In other words, you're doing a kind of community-breaking um, kind of sin. So Paul says in, in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, uh, God forgave you. So slander comes up re- repeatedly in the New Testament. And this is just talking ill of somebody else, either to them or about them. We've talked about sin as addiction. Sin feels like release when actually it's enslaving. We've talked about sin as self-harm. But we must remember that sin is to break the two love commands. Godliness is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And godliness is to love your neighbor um, as yourself. Sin, they're always breaking those two love commands. So sin is always God alienating. Sin will always break the felt presence of the Lord in your life. He will seem more distant. Even though we know however many steps you take away, it's only one step back, which is to ask for forgiveness on the basis of the cross. 
Sin is always God alienating, but sin is also always community weakening. Community weakening. So to say false things about your brother and sister in Christ is to do violence to them. To slander someone is to have balled your fist up and stuck it in their face. It's to have loaded your, your firearm and, and, and to let it go. And it happens. I've seen it happen in the last fortnight. Most dramatic slander, really, um, within the household of God. It's got to not be. It's got to not be. It's Satan who's the father of lies. It's Satan who's uh, the ultimate murderer. And if you remember, then, then hate is mental murder. Slander is the same. It is uh, mental malice. Well, it's more than that, isn't it, actually? Spoken out malice. Spoken malice. It does damage. As do all the little things, like, you know, we wander around and somebody asks you how you are and you decide you're not going to tell them how you are. But that's just, I know, that's British people in particular. But hey, let's be honest. Um, with one another, that would be it. That would be enough challenge for one day, wouldn't it? We said, let's go to coffee and let's be really honest. Um, that would be enough challenge for one day, wouldn't it? But slander lined a community-breaking speech. Community-building speech is always characterised by truth in love. And Paul says, speaking the truth in love will will grow up together. When we're speaking the truth in love, we'll grow up together. So one more thought uh, to finish this. Your speech will be your judgment. You realize this. On the day of judgment, the Lord will have a record of of all the stuff that you've done. Um, But all he really needs would be a record of your words. It would be a scary thing. If if you had a little, you know, if you had a a permanent personal stenographer who, who kind of worked alongside you and kind of like just wrote down everything you said. Um, you, you wouldn't want that, would you? You'd want that kind of shredded pretty quickly. Because Jesus says this, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. On the day of judgment you'll be shown either to be a Christ follower or not by, by your words. So it's good news then, isn't it, that it's not just true that Jesus is our model of perfect God-honoring, community-building speech. It's not just true that he is the example and we know we've failed to meet the mark. There's another truth, which is Jesus has been crucified for your poor choice of words. Hallelujah. Jesus has been crucified for your and mine. Poor choice of words. Words that were said when they shouldn't have been. Words that weren't said when they should have been. 
words that were spoken when the third party um, wasn't around. Jesus went to the cross for that. And he was nailed and bled and died for your speech. And if you trust it, then all those poor choices of words are, are forgiven. And then the great truth of the gospel, Jesus' perfect speech, is credited to you and me. Stand before God. This is the truth of the gospel, isn't it? But perhaps we don't think of it in terms of our words. Jesus died for your words. Your words are forgiven. And Jesus' amazing, truthful, moment by moment, always appropriate, always loving, community-building words are credited to you and I as righteousness by faith. What a great God who never lies. What a great saviour who dies for our words. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us if we've thought that our words, we've got them under control Somehow we can deal with them by ourselves. Forgive us, it's a mistake. Thank you that they come under the economy of the cross, that they are uh, forgiven by the death of your son. Thank you that they come under the same help. Thank you by your Holy Spirit living within us and, and writing this law about false witness on our hearts we can change thank you that he gives us gives us new power new energy and a, a warmed up conscience to be able to change we ask for that we pray today at least we be really honest honest in a way that loves our brothers and sisters loves you we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.